1: Hey, friend it's Steve here. And Larson. Pro wrestling has had a long, complicated relationship in the general pop culture landscape. At its best, it's seen as modern myth making on par with the
2: finest entertainment today has to offer. And as such, there's been a fair bit of crossover
1: between pro wrestling and other pop culture offerings. Yeah, sometimes it's great, seamless. Bret Hart appearing on Mad TV and The Simpsons. Cindy Lauper's rock and wrestling connection—the rock hosting SNL. Other times, it's just been plain
2: weird and/or awkward. Fortunately for you, though, we found the 10 weirdest wrestling pop
1: culture crossover moments there's been. Number 10: WWE and He-Man. Every year, WWE toy fans get a sneak peek at the latest WWE toys at the San Diego Comic Con. Each year, WWE license holder Mattel dazzles fans with a usually hefty lineup of figures that pay homage to both the past and the present. This year was no different, an impressive lineup of figures including
2: current NXT stars were unveiled, but there was one glaring omission.
1: WWE Retro Toys. There's a lineup of toys from Mattel that are built in the same way and resemble old school WWF toys, but using the likenesses of stars of today and they are no more. What? You just made the list. But what seemingly replaced them is, in my opinion, way cooler and really weird. WWE He-Man crossover toys, one of
2: the biggest selling toys of our generation, the masters of the universe, has been mashed up
1: with WWE for a line coming out at some point in the future. There's really no rhyme or reason for this, but WWE really should make like a 10 episode He-Man WWE mashup cartoon in the style of the old He-Man show, because Steve would freaking love that, man. Look at this Ultimate Warrior figure, Larson. That guy might have been a nutcase, but man, this is legit. He really looks like he belongs in that universe. I'm just
2: not sure if he'd align himself with He-Man and Matt at Arms, or if he joined forces with
1: Skeletor. Oh, kayfabe, definitely He-Man. He was a good guy, but if it's a shoot, then he's Team Skeletor all the way. <laughs> Number nine.
2: KISS DEMON! You know, if Jim Crockett made a deal with KISS back in, like, I don't know, 1979 when the band was at the height of its fame, when every teenager probably had at least one copy of KISS alive, it would have made a ton of sense and probably would have made the, his promotion
1: a ton of money. Oh yeah, totally. KISS was always down to license their images for basically anything and say if the God of Thunder had made an appearance in the late 70s in the mid-Atlantic region to team up against Ric Flair, oh man, it would have been huge. Yeah. Unfortunately for WCW, when Eric Bischoff made a deal with KISS to bring in a character inspired by the band, it was 1999 when no one cared about KISS. Yeah, we know this because the
2: concert KISS DID helped introduce the KISS demon on WCW Nitro as one of the lowest rated segments up to that point in the show's history, and then the Demon lost his debut match to hardcore icon Terry Funk. So much for getting a push. Yeah,
1: seems like another instance of Eric Bischoff trying really hard to be cool dude, but coming off as out of touch suburban dad. Like he tried to make the NWO Motorcycle Gang, which could have been cool, but then they were the bikers who tucked their shirts in kinda MC, which really isn't cool. Not really cool. Apparently the Demon was
2: supposed to be the start of a full on Kiss stable called the Warriors of Kiss, but after the Demon's debut dropped like a turd, that was scuttled. Mm. The Demon, per the contract KISS signed with WCW, is also supposed to main event a pay-per-view, which did, if you consider the fourth
1: match on the card, the main event. No, it's not really. Eventually, references to KISS were dropped altogether, and the character was just known as the Demon. Really, somebody should've shot down this idea with a love gun when it was pitched and awful. Oh man, look at you dropping some Kiss references. I had no idea you were a fan. Oh God, I'm not. you I'm not that old. I just like the song because it's all about dicks. It's all about Paul Stanley's. Love gun. Number eight. Kevin Federline versus John Cena. WWE has never been averse to partnering with whatever pop culture fad captures the zeitgeist of the day. It's a strategy they've employed with huge success since the rock and wrestling days, using Cyndi Lauper and Mr. T to bring eyeballs to the product. But
2: time after time, Vince McMahon has no problem showing his true colors and going lowbrow, with whom he enlists from outside the world of WWE to pop ratings. In 2011, Snooky from Jersey Shore was involved in a mixed tag match, and at WrestleMania 23,
1: Let's just forget about that one, yeah? Yeah, but the bottom of the barrel was scraped back in late 2006, early 2007, when WWE brought in Britney Spears' boyfriend? Husband? Husband? husband. I think. Was I supposed to research Kevin Kevin Federline for this, Larson? Yeah, man, be a professional. I know, I know, I totally did research Kevin Federline. They were married for two years, yeah. they have a few kids together, and they have all sorts of custody issues, even as recent as this year. Anyways, shockingly, WWE was ahead of the pop culture curve here because even though KFED was perceived in the public as a gold digging turd, his first appearance on Raw was three weeks before Britney Spears filed for divorce, which of course launched him even further into pop culture infamy.
2: And in fact, in watching his promo segment with John Morrison and Melina on his first Raw, KFED was actually a pretty good heel. Yeah. He know how to work a crowd better than many do today. And of course, his appearance did actually pop ratings
1: Fed is a draw. Yeah, man. Anyways, later on in that episode of Raw, John Cena, who at the time was WWE champ and the most popular thing going, called him out and gave him an FU, which led to a feud that culminated in a New Year's Day match that Federline won thanks to a no DQ stipulation and an assault from Umaga. I'll be honest, it sounds a lot better than the crap they shovel at us on New Year's episodes these days. What are you talking about, man? This year we got the McMahon shakeup. Nothing says creative innovation like a sweaty, desperate plea for ratings. Oh, please watch my show. Please watch my show. I'll take K-Fed any day, man. Number seven. Hulk Hogan versus The Incredible Hulk. When's the last time Hulk Hogan did a clean squash match job to anyone, Larson? Uh, Never, unless we're talking about uh, hidden video cameras. Oh, man, I'm talking about in the ring. Oh, never. No, it doesn't happen. No, it doesn't happen. Unless, of course, it takes place in the pages of a comic book. Namely, Marvel Comics Presents, an anthology series that back in the day, Marvel used to give reps to up-and-coming talent, and hence, featured throwaway stories that weren't exactly must-read. Kind of like WWE has main event, even though it's exclusively for the loser locker room. And although Hulk
2: Hogan was known for wielding ultimate power backstage using his creative control heavy contract and seeming mind control over Vince McMahon, he wielded no such power in the Marvel Universe because the Incredible Hulk squashed Hulk Hogan, literally throwing him out the roof of the venue he was wrestling at and into the home of an enthusiastic wrestling fan. And this
1: was after an on-panel Judas effect Anyways, this oddball jobber match that pitted Hulk versus Hulk in Marvel Comics Presents number 45 may have stemmed from the legal agreement between Hogan and Marvel from 1984, which settled the legal beef Marvel had with WWF over the name Hulk. In short, Marvel received $100 for every Hogan
2: match he wrestled for 20 years, plus a cut of his merchandise. Evidently, this also meant they could book him into the ground in whatever the premier wrestling promotion was in the Marvel universe as well. This was in 1988, about four years after the original agreement was struck. So, who knows, maybe the writer of that story was a huge Randy Savage fan and saw Hogan for what he really was
1: a true heel. You think Hogan ever actually read that comic book? Well, let me tell you something, brother. <laughs> I've read two comic books in my day. Okay, what are they? I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that was a good setup, anyway. I ran out of gas, real quick. <laughs> Number six. Naked Gun Fake Undertaker! Let's go back to Royal Rumble 94, Larson, where Yokozuna defeated The Undertaker in a casket match, and then poof, the dead man disappeared for months, probably enjoying himself an nice ass cruise down the river, stygian No,
2: jackass. He was nursing a back injury. Oh,
1: man. Keep it kayfabe,
2: Larson. Anyways, whether he was recovering from an injury or taking a pleasure cruise down the sticks, mm. Taker was gone for months until WWE started airing videos where people claimed to have spotted The Undertaker. It was like the Where's Waldo craze that was sweeping the nation a few years prior, except for a giant
1: dude in a mortician's costume. Then Ted DiBiase, the man who brought The Undertaker to WWE in the first place, Place, claimed to have found the phenom and had brought him back. Oh, but au contraire, said Paul Bearer, who had his own Undertaker. Regardless, like all things WWE,
2: the only way to settle which Undertaker was true Undertaker was to have a match pitting Undertaker versus Undertaker
1: to determine who was the real Undertaker. Yeah, and what better way to build up the drama than to get Officer Frank Drebin in on the case? Surely you can't be serious. I am serious, Larson, and don't call me Shirley. What ensued was a hapless whodunit that ran throughout SummerSlam 94. That would have been moderately amusing for an episode of Police Squad, but struck the completely wrong tone when dealing with a story about one undead mortician taking on another undead mortician to determine who is the real undead mortician? Yeah, just another
2: example of Vince working in the celebrity appearance for the sake of working in the celebrity appearance, whether it benefited the story being told or not. In the end, the match was a stinker, and Paul Bearer's Undertaker was, surprise, the real Undertaker. DiBiase's dead man was just prime time. Brian Lee dressed up to go like to an Eyes Wide Shut type party. Maybe Leslie Nielsen should have just asked, under Faker,
1: what the password was. The password is Stygian.
2: Wrong, Taker, the password is Fidelio. Mm, but the dead man wants to smash.
1: Sorry, dead man, need the password. Number five. The Tonight Show WCW crossover. So in late 1998, WCW is facing a grim reality. The WWF had experienced a renaissance with the Attitude Era, and fans were eating up everything Stone Cold, The Rock, DX, and Mankind. WCW still had plenty of fans and Goldberg was hot. But they weren't exactly exciting the young demo like Vince's crew was so in August 1998 WCW busted out their secret weapon Jay Leno uh,
2: the talk show host slash auto enthusiast and cross paths with Hulk Hogan on a few occasions and WCW had just wrapped up a successful mainstream crossover program putting Carl Malone DDP against Dennis Rodman in the NWO so the idea was hey we can promote our big motorcycle rally slash wrestling pay-per-view hog wild road Wild, whatever it was called that year at the tonight
1: show and bring Jay into wrestle yeah the problem was Jay Leno was not cool never was and he had grandpa body nope yep. like what the fuck is he wearing right here sweatpants with a blue shirt tucked in and then he actually held his own against Hulk Hogan during moments of this match how, how is that possible didn't make any sense you're exposing the business brother
2: and then Jay Leno got the pin on Eric Bischoff after a diamond cutter from his band
1: leader Kevin Eubanks who's actually jazz. that dude was actually fit yeah, yeah. And this was still two years away from WCW's worst creative year. Like, it actually got worse than this. It went downhill after this. It went this. way downhill. You know, we watched this probably at my parents' house. I think they paid money for it. Uh, we didn't We didn't have one of those illegal stream boxes or anything? I don't think we're supposed to talk about that. Uh, statu- I mean, no. Statute of limitations were far probably over. Probably not
2: good to talk about it, just.
1: Number four, four. Jerry Lawler versus Batman. Noted Superman aficionado and artist extraordinaire Jerry Lawler got his shot at going one-on-one with the Batman himself back in 1976 in his home territory of Memphis.
2: Adam West may have donned the cape and cowl to iconic effect back in the late 60s, but his run as the Dark Knight stayed with him wherever he went. Some actors may have dreaded being tied to the one role, but West seemed to embrace it, as he had no issue putting on
1: the costume for a variety of Batman appearances after the series ended. Yeah, so it was a fun moment in 1976 when Wes showed up in full Batman uh, tracksuit track suit. to cut a promo on the heel Lawler, and it was maybe one of the most bizarre promos ever. Some chalk it up to West potentially being drunk, a point disputed by interviewer Dave Brown, who says Wes was simply under the weather and uncomfortable in the Batman mask.
2: In any event, it's weird but playful, and you can tell Lawler got a kick out of it, wearing a modified Superman suit to mock the track
1: suited crusader. I really need to make an Adam West Batman versus Jerry Lawler comic book, man, to see how the rest of this story played out. Pretty sure that's violating at least some licensing rights and
2: trademarks. I'd, I'd sell it out of my trunk, though, so it's totally legal.
1: It's not! Anything you sell out of your you trunk, know, it's legal!
2: Your concept of legality is very skewed, I'm gonna be honest with you.
0: Number three
1: Warrior and Phil Collins video! Back in 1992, forces of pop culture came together in one of the weirdest music videos ever. No, we're not talking about MC Hammer and Taco Bell. That was a year later. No, we're talking about Phil Collins
2: and The Ultimate Warrior. At this point in Phil Collins' career, he was a veritable one-man hit factory. His album, But Seriously, spawned four top five singles. This was
1: after he scored two number one hits with the soundtrack to Buster. I'm not familiar with that one. Yeah, that was a great movie. Anyways. One of those songs, Two Hearts, was one of the featured songs in the Phil Collins CBS special called Seriously, Phil Collins. It was sort of a goofy fictional take on, I don't know, Phil Collins, but then he sang like all of his hits, but in skit form. 1990, this is weird, man. Like, it's the things on YouTube. Just look it up if you're a Phil Collins fan. really, who isn't?
2: Yeah, I know. Mm. Anyways, for whatever reason, the Ultimate Warrior was a guest star and had an impromptu wrestling match against Phil for his two hearts Videos segment. Yeah. Warrior noticeably doesn't have his regular face paint, just the Warrior symbol painted on his cheek like he went to the fair or something. Yeah. And uh, he wrestled Phil while wearing the WWF Championship.
1: Evidently, he didn't need to take it off for Phil Collins. He's kind of small. Warrior's feud with Collins was short-lived, though. The match itself was like maybe a two-star affair, basically because Two Hearts is a banger of a tune, and Warrior does do a little dance with Phil right before the action starts. About, I don't know, eight years later, though, Phil brought Warrior back for the release of
2: his greatest hits album and beat him to avenge the previous loss, an absolute trash match set to a remix of Susudio. That's just a joke, because Hogan totally did that. Halloween Havoc 98.
1: Yeah, Hogan never would have gotten in the ring with Phil Collins, man, cuz he's too small and would have exposed the business, brother. Let me tell you something, brother. Maybe Marvel Comics should have made a comic book about that. Yeah, that's good, and then Phil would have gone over. They could just do whatever they want with Hulk Hogan, apparently. Apparently. <laughs> Number 2. Rambo! You know, sometimes wrestlers or promotions will come up with gimmicks that almost directly reference something in pop culture in like every way that isn't literal. Trademark violation. Yeah, like Sting. Obviously, he's the crow, but he's still Sting. Yeah, the artist formerly known as Prince Ayakea. I mean, that's just Prince. Well, then Velveteen Dream against he Pretty much Prince. It's just Prince. Much yeah, Prince. It's pretty Prince. Pretty yeah. Pretty much Prince, yeah. So it wouldn't be surprising if someone tried to emulate an iconic action hero like, for example, John Rambo, except with a different name. Mm-hmm. Or hell, use the same name in the case of Rambo, the luchador, whose given name is Jose Luis Mendieta Rodriguez. Yeah, trademark infringement
2: is always a big obvious no no here in the States, but down in Mexico, things are a little different. Yeah. Even AAA still uses copyrighted theme music on shows and allows their wrestlers to sport superhero costumes complete with trademarked logos.
1: Yeah, but Jose was such a big fan of Rambo, evidently, that upon the first movie coming out in 1982, he began using the name Rambo and sported camo military gear, complete with camo lucha mask, which I don't recall Rambo ever wearing. Yeah, it's highly lucha
2: doubtful mask. that Sylvester Stallone had any say in this, but
1: Quan Rambo
2: carried this character throughout his career with the obvious caveat that when he made it up this way to the US, he went simply by the mercenary. In 2005,
1: he lost a hair versus hair match, capping off a 35-year career. John Rambo, on the other hand, is still going at it, having released Rambo: Last Blood like just a few months ago. Hard to believe Rambo is a childhood icon for so many our age, Larson. He had like cartoons and, and toys. toys and yeah, stuff. yeah. Like, did anyone ever actually think about that stuff back then? Hey, kids, here's a mass murder. You should look up. No good? Here, have RoboCop instead. He had cartoons also and toys. I'm glad you mentioned RoboCop. RoboCop versus the Four Horsemen. In the history of weird pop culture mashups, this one easily takes the cake. Evidently, whomever was the marketing guru over at Orion Pictures back in 1990 was a huge mark because as part of the ad blitz for RoboCop 2, the robotic peace officer basically took over the WCW NWA Capital Combat pay-per-view in May of that year. The event was literally titled Capital Combat, The
2: Return of RoboCop. Although, given how really effed up and dark RoboCop 2 is, you have to wonder, was this really the place to put all your marketing dollars?
1: Yeah, the RoboCop movies are basically horror movies under the guise of speculative sci-fi. At least the first two. There are some supremely fucked up things going on there, man. And yet, they had toys and cartoons also.
2: It's the 80s for you. It's weird. Anyways, just prior to this event, the four horsemen bolstered their ranks by adding Barry Windham and Sid to their group. After having turned on Sting and ousting him from the stable, Ole Anderson became a manager at this point, so they were really kind of like the five
1: horsemen, but whatever. Yeah, so to counter the strength of Sid and to ensure new challenger Lex Luger received a fair shot against Flair for the NWA world title, Sting brought in RoboCop even though Washington, D.C. is clearly out of his jurisdiction of near-future Detroit. All Robocop did really was get help Sting get out of a clearly unhinged shark cage after the horseman locked him in it, so he was basically unnecessary. He didn't even draw his pistol on anyone, so it was a huge big fart, and now on par with Shockmaster's debut and Russo winning the title for some of the stupidest WCW bullshit ever. The only question we had, and still have to this day, is was it Peter Weller under the Robo helmet? Listen. If anyone out there has the answer to this or is in line for a Sting meet and greet right now while you're watching this, ask the man himself and let us know. Then we could ask him other questions like why didn't Robocop stay with WCW? Was he ever courted by WWF to feud with the Warrior? Would Robocop consider himself Wolfpack NWO or NWO Hollywood? Well, he's silver, sort of black and silver. So, so it'd be
2: NWO 2000. It'd be
1: NWO 2000. We solved that one. Yeah. Anyways, uh, those are some of the weirdest pop culture wrestling mashups we could think of. Be sure to let us know what we missed in the comments. Hit subscribe so you can subscribe to the channel. And then watch these other videos right here, too, because we got some more of these. Yeah, goodbye. Bye.